You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. But it's one of those christian sounding phrases that goes directly against the teaching of the Bible. I'm not even going to pull a punch on that one. It's not even sometimes true. It's never true, okay? That God never gives you something that you can't handle, or he'll never give you more than you can handle. You see, our our culture tends to think of the Christian life as uh, God thinks I'm awesome. And, And the problem is that I just don't see how awesome I am. And therefore, he gives me trials to show me how awesome I am in overcoming them or to make me prove that I am awesome enough to deserve his favor. And so he somehow knows something about me that I don't know. And that is actually what we're saying when we say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That you're in a situation, you don't think you can handle it. But but you just don't know how strong you are. You need to think more highly of yourself. You need to have some faith in yourself. You you need to look inside yourself and find your inner roar. You you know how much I love self-help, don't you? (laughs) But we actually then get into a situation that is bigger than us. Where, Where we're actually in a battle with sin that we can't master, or, or we're confronted with a step of faith that we're needing to take, or, or we're faced with a trial that we need to endure, and we're like, what is God thinking? I can't handle this. How could, I possibly, how could he possibly expect me to handle this? We, we apply this same line of thinking when we look at other people and how they seem to overcome sin and take next steps of faith with no problem at all. So we, we might remember a guy like Bruce, and we might think, oh man, he must have really been someone special. I could never have the type of relationship with the Lord that Bruce had. I could never take the, t- the steps of faith that Bruce did. I could only dream of being as effective of an encourager as he was. I could only dream of, of taking that step of, of going overseas and serving the Lord or whatever it might be for you. But Bruce would tell you, just as we stated over and over again, it wasn't him, it was Jesus. The legacy of Bruce's life was clearly so not. Look at how great Bruce is. But rather, how great is Bruce's God? We do the same thing when we read about certain Bible stories. We think, oh, God must have really thought highly of of Moses or David or Gideon or fill in your favorite character. Like they really ended up doing some great things for God. God must have really thought that they were capable, even when they couldn't see it themselves, he really thought they were capable of doing these awesome things for the Lord. And then we take them and we make them our heroes. And we try to, you know, moralize their stories and imitate their examples. We create this false understanding of their lives against which we measure ourselves. And then, of course, we feel like we can't measure up. God has this expectation. There's people in the past who've been able to fulfill it, and we can't. 
But when we really dig into God's word, uh, we, we learn how far that picture, that understanding of people and even ourselves, we learn how far that is from the truth. These guys were, were mere men, mere women. They lacked a lot. They were not worthy in themselves, but they did serve a worthy God. Such an awesome God. So generous, so mighty, so powerful. And what made them anything was that the mercy of God was shown to them and the powerful grace was, of God was upon them. And God doesn't want us to, to make Bible characters into personal heroes. The Bible has one hero. If you want to understand any story in the Bible, you understand, you look for the hero. And the hero is God. The hero is God. And the Bible continually disproves the idea that God will never give you more than you can handle. And instead, it, it replaces it with the truth that God will often give you more than you can handle so that you would learn to put your trust in him. That, that's like the whole point of the consequences that are in the book of Judges. They're, they're not given so that Israel can learn how to handle them. That They're given so that they will learn to cry out to the Lord. And I don't know if there's a better place in the book of Judges or even in the whole Bible to understand this than the life of Gideon. Gideon has made, been made into a great hero to model ourselves after. Do you need to, to make a decision? Throw out a fleece or some other thing. Do you need a skilled set of leaders? Determine their sense of urgency by some weird test. But the point of Gideon's story in the Bible is not so that we would look to Gideon but so that we would look to Gideon's God. In fact, that's what Gideon had to learn over and over and over again. Don't look to Gideon, look to my God. And so from his life, we can learn that in order to see victory in our lives, we must trust God, not ourselves. That's the title of today's sermon and our big idea for this morning. Trust God, not yourself, as he mercifully rescues you from the cycles of sin. Trust God, not yourself, as he mercifully rescues you from the cycles of sin. We've been seeing all throughout this series that, that we, uh, we need someone to break the cycles of sin in our lives. And it's God who is the one who does that. We, we all find ourselves in sinful rebellion at times. We all find ourselves reluctant of taking the next steps forward in our walk of faith. And there's still always more ground to conquer when it comes to sin. You feel that in your life? And so we need to seek the merciful rescue of God. Trust God, not yourself. We're continuing in this sermon series in Judges, into Judges chapter 6 and 7 today. And, and what we've been seeing is this cycle of rebellion and rescue play out over and over again. So Israel continually gives themselves over to idols. They rebel. And so God raises up someone to oppress them, to conquer them. It's the consequence for their sin, which then leads to them crying out in the midst of that. Now, sometimes that's just regret. It's just Man, I wish we weren't in these consequences. 
Sometimes it, I, I think that it could be genuine repentance in that one particular generation. And so God, in, in the midst of their cries, he hears their cries, he shows them mercy, and he raises up a deliverer to rescue them, which brings them into a season of rest, of peace, which also happens to be a season of testing. Will they turn from the idols of the people around them? Will they follow through on God's commands to remove the idolatrous people and the idols from their midst? And so as we get into chapter 6, we're going to see the cycle repeat. See if you can see it in what we read in chapter 6, verses 1 to 24. I'm going to stop along the way and just make a few comments, uh, but we're going to take this section by section through chapter 6 and 7 today. Judges 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's the rebellion. It's the common refrain. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. So the consequence that the Lord gives is now Midian. In the past, it's been Eglon. It's been Kushan, Rishathayim. Now it's Midian. This is what Midian did. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So they're sending the Israelites into hiding. All of the Israelites are afraid, and here's what they're afraid of. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come up like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they had laid waste in the land as they came in. So every, every year for seven years, the Israelites would do all of this work to, to plant some crops and to maybe raise some livestock. And every year, like clockwork, the Midianites and the uh, Amalekites, it says, come in and lay waste to the land. And so it's like they're just letting the Israelites do all the work for them. You ever see the movie A Bug's Life? If, if you've ever seen that, like the grasshoppers come in every, every year and they take all the ants' food, right? Like it's kind of like that, right? That's what's going on. Kids, that was for you. Because the adults are looking at me like, no, why are you watching kids' movies? So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Israel was brought very low. They're humiliated. They're weak. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. There's that, is it repentance or is it regret? Is it repentance or is it regret? We're going we're gonna to find out that it's regret. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Now I want you to notice this is different than what has happened in the past. In the past, he's raised up a deliverer right away. Now he's going to send them a prophet who has a message for them. Thus, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave, them, gave you their land. 
And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So God sends them a prophet so that in the midst of their crying out, they would understand why they are enduring the consequences that they are. He's like, you haven't gotten it all the cycles before. I'm going to be really explicit with you now. You keep on giving yourself over to idolatry, not obeying my voice. So that's God's interpretation is understanding, right? And now we, we could expect that God's just going to leave them in the consequences. But that's not what he does. Look at the mercy of God that happens next. Now the angel of the Lord, stop there for a second. Whenever we see angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, I believe, and many scholars believe, that it is what is called a, a theophany or a Christophany. It, it is a visible manifestation of God, most likely the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, in the Old Testament. Some sort of visible manifestation of him in, look, that looks like an angel or a person. So the angel of the Lord, and we know that because, by the way, Gideon addresses him like he is God, and the angel does not correct him. Every other angel corrects people when they start bowing down at their feet or they say, I'm just a messenger, don't bow down to me, bow down to God, but the angel of the Lord lets it happen. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, not to be confused with Oprah, sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So remember how we read all about how the Israelites were hiding in dens and caves and all that stuff? Well, Gideon is a representation of that, right? So now we're kind of, we took the 30,000 foot view, now we're, we're honed in on one specific person. And Gideon found a wine press, which would have been probably... Uh, indoors and, and, and in a low-lying area. So when you normally threshed the grain, you would stand up at the top of a hill, you would, you would uh, beat it, and then you would throw it up in the air so that the chaff blew away in the wind because at the top of a hill, you have a good, strong wind. But now Gideon is in a wine press, and so this is a little bit more difficult because you don't have a lot of wind in a wine press. And so he's just, he is just laboring against himself. But this is the best thing that he knows how to do because he is in hiding. He's trusting his best instincts at this moment, and yet he is totally frustrated by it. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, that could be sarcasm, right? Like, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Look at you hiding here. I, I don't think that it is, though. Because the Lord is starting with these words, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. And I believe that God is seeing something in Gideon that Gideon doesn't see, not in him himself, but in God's presence with him. That, that God is saying, you're going to become a mighty man of valor because of my presence with you. But now there is some irony in the, in the statement. 
the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Gideon's like, please, come on. Can't be. And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. I just want you to make a mental note that's significantly different than what the prophet revealed. Similar facts, different interpretation. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? What might? Might to talk back to the Lord? Might to thresh in a wine press? So Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I feel really weak, Lord. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So now Gideon is going to start to begin to realize, wait a minute, I've heard things like this in the past. I'm wondering who this might be. Maybe I'm starting to get a hint. Let me try something here. He said to him, if I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Maybe maybe this is like that angel of the Lord God that I've heard about before. Like, show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. So he's going to bring him an offering. And so the angel of the Lord said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and, and, and the broth he put in a pot and he brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. So now the, you got just soggy meat and cakes. Mmm. But that it would keep it from burning, right? He did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Like I just can imagine Gideon like, Whoa! like what happened? And then all of a sudden, the angel is gone. Then Gideon built an altar. Oh, I'm sorry. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Yep. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. There's fear. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. It's mercy. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. To this day it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. We're going to stop there. So we're learning to to trust God, not ourselves, right? And the Midianites and the the Amalekites are oppressing Israel. They're, They're forcing them into hiding. They're plundering their land year after year after year. And then we get to meet the Lord's deliverer from these this mighty nation. Not much of a deliverer, really. He's he's hiding just like the rest of the nation. He he doesn't seem to have a lot of trust, a lot of faith in what God is doing. And Gideon's assessment, 
I believe, is really the representative assessment of the nation at that time. Yes, they're crying out to the Lord, but they're kind of maybe like, I don't know if he's actually going to answer us. Israel is having a hard time seeing God from their sinful perspective. And so here's the first thing that I believe that we get to learn about trusting God, not ourselves. Uh, Don't trust what you can see. Trust the one who sees you. Don't trust what you can see. Trust the one who sees you. Israel was so blinded by their sin that they could not understand the consequences of God properly. It's so interesting how we interpret our situations based on our own sin-tainted, self-focused perspectives, isn't it? In this section, we get God's perspective on their situation. And then we get Israel's perspective through the mouth of Gideon. And I think we interpret our battles with sin and the consequences of sin in similar ways as the Israelites sometimes. What we see is often different than what the Lord sees. And so let's just talk about this a little bit. What we see, our awareness of the situation. We say the opposition is fierce. We should hide. Kind of that fight or flight thing that we talked about a while back. Verse 2, Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, in the caves, in the strongholds. Verse 11, Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. The opposition is fierce. We should hide. That's our impulse. Let's go where no one can see us. Let's, Let's try protecting ourselves for seven years before we ever cry out to the Lord. Let's see how it goes with us first, and then maybe we'll try God. That's the conclusion that their level of awareness led them to. Then we have our assessment. The Lord has forsaken us, and therefore we should fear the oppressor. Verse 12, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this thing happened to us? But now the Lord has forsaken us. Do you ever feel like that when you're going through a challenge or a trial in your life? Where's God in all this? He must not be present. He must not be with me. You know what? The Lord probably hates me. And then we start to get angry with God. That's our assessment. And then we look at our ability and we see our own ability. We are weak and humiliated. Verse 6, Israel was brought very low. Verse 15, Gideon says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Those are the things that we see. Now let's look at what the Lord sees. Here's the Lord's awareness. The opposition is fierce. He doesn't minimize the opposition, but he sees you in your hiding and hears your cries. He is ready to answer when you cry. Verse 8, when the people cried out to the Lord, 
the Lord sent a prophet. Verse 12, Gideon was beating wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him right there in that place of hiding. God goes to the place of fear and hiding and shame, and he draws his people out and gives them his presence to fight the battle. The Lord's then assessment of the situation. Instead of the Lord has forsaken us, his perspective is we have forsaken him and we must fear him instead. Notice the, the, the stark difference that, that the prophet says, yes, the Lord led you up out of Egypt. Then he brought you out of the house of slavery. He delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. He said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you dwelled, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have forsaken me. I've not forsaken you. Listen, when, when we feel like God isn't with us, it's not God who turned his back. It's us. It's so amazing. We live in a fallen world and we participate in the fallenness of the world with our own sin, and yet we have the audacity to look at God and say, you are the problem. If God is so good, then why? Why is there so many bad things happening in the world? Why is there so many bad things happening in my life? And then we have the Lord's ability. So we look at our weakness and our humiliation, and we, must say, we say we must be incapable of being used. The Lord doesn't turn that around and say, no, you are capable. You are so strong. You're awesome. No, the Lord says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. He says, go in this might of yours. Do I not send you? He is with the weak and gives grace to the humble. Weakness is the position that God loves us to be in and to recognize. God is not giving Gideon a commission and then saying, go figure it out, buddy. Come back to me and tell me when the job is done. God is giving Gideon a commission to participate in what God is already doing. God is the deliverer of Israel, not Gideon. God is the one who understands and sees rightly, not Gideon. And that's so important when it comes to breaking the cycles of sin in our lives and taking our next steps of faith as a disciple. God is the one who mercifully rescues us from our sin. He's the one who understands the way out. Ours is but to trust him. God is not saying, throughout this book of Judges, throughout this sermon series, God is not saying, break free from your cycle of sin by trusting yourself. That would just be heaping more sin upon sin because the essence of sin is trying to do God things without God. Instead, God wants us to seek his merciful rescue so that he would receive the glory. 
And so Gideon asked for a sign. He says, let me bring you an offering. So God allows it, and he consumes the offering, and now Gideon finally sees. Verse 22, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Once Gideon fully understands who he's talking to, he rightly is afraid. The proper fear of the Lord takes control of his heart, and he begins to walk in the way of wisdom that is going to lead to his salvation. He humbles himself before the Lord. And it's when we get our eyes off, off of our issues and off of our solutions, and we get our eyes onto God and fear him that he begins to work. The question is, will we see the one who sees us? Will we see the one who sees us? So this week we were playing hide and seek as a family. And uh, we don't have a very large house. And in that house, it's very hard for a six foot three man to find a hiding place. And so I went into the boys' room. Uh, they all share a room. And I, I hid behind this really skinny little dresser, right? And, and uh, I just kind of sat there. Like I was, I was out in plain sight, basically. But Asher was the seeker, right? He's a three-year-old, four-year-old, four-year-old. And, um, and so he's coming in, and he, he comes into the room, and, and, you know, he probably could see my shoulder at that point if he was really looking. But he goes into the closet. He's looking, and he's not in the closet. Then he goes over to the bed, and, and not behind the bed. And then he, like, literally comes over, and he's looking at the floor. And I'm sitting right, like, I'm, like, right there. And then he looks up, and he's like... And he just laughs, and we just had a good laugh about it. It was great, you know, because he knew that I could see him, but he couldn't see me. And God may seem like he is hiding to us, but really he's in plain sight. And yet we must seek him if we are going to see him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Because our sin blinds us and the consequences of living in a falling world cloud our vision, we need to seek the one who sees. We need to look for him in the midst of the consequences. It is when we seek God with eyes of faith with faith that looks beyond our circumstances, faith that fears God above all, that we actually begin to see Him. And when we do, God is eager to show us mercy. Gideon has just spent 13 verses mouthing off to God when he didn't even know who he was talking to. He's rightly afraid at this point now that he realizes it. But God in his mercy, he says to Gideon in verse 24, do not fear, you shall not die. Peace be to you. That's mercy. And that's what God says to us through Jesus. He says, I see you. I see your situation better than you can see it yourself. I sent my son to be there with you. He understands. He knows. And through him, I will bring you peace. 
Now that you have learned to fear me, I will make peace with you. Now that you have come to see me through eyes of faith, you shall not die, even though I should kill you, because I put my son to death instead. I see your sin and what it deserves, and I will deliver you from it. I see your groanings, and I will deliver you in them. I see your weaknesses, and I will deliver you through them. God sees. One of his names in the Bible is El Roy, the God who sees. God sees, and he he shows mercy. He sees as you sit in your room alone fighting temptation not to view that thing on the screen that you know you shouldn't look at. He sees as you feel the impulse to snap at your kids when you're correcting them over the same thing for the hundredth time that day. He sees you face to face with your pressures at work or at school to fit in a culture that does not honor God. He sees you as you feel the urge to be lazy and watch TV instead of doing the work that he has called you to do. He sees you as you desire to win the argument with your spouse instead of humbling yourself. He sees you in that moment of weakness and temptation and trial and fear. And the question is, do we see him? Do we see him through eyes of faith? Do we trust him enough to see him as the God who sees? Do we trust that he's aware of our circumstances and still in control? Do we trust his assessment of how we got there, that he is to be feared above all gods, that we forsake him in our sin, and yet still he loves us so much that he gives us mercy that leads us to repentance? Do we we trust that he is able to use the weak things of this world to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to God? Don't trust what you can see. Trust the one who sees you. Now, if we're going to trust him, it means that we're going to take some action steps toward that trust. Look at verse 25. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, That your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So God is telling Gideon, do something that's going to get you in major trouble with your daddy. So Gideon took the ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but, this is a big important but, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town he, to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. So the whole deed is done by morning. Verse 29, and they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said, remember Joash is his dad, right? 
Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on this day, Gideon was called Jerobbaal, which means let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. And Gideon gets kind of this hero's name, even though he doesn't really deserve much. But here's the second way we must trust God, not ourselves. Don't trust what you must sustain. Trust the one who sustains you. Don't trust what you must sustain. Trust the one who sustains you. So we, we get the picture from verse 11 that, that Gideon is still living on the family farm where his parents live. He's, he's under that tree and in that wine press that, that belongs to his father. Now, I don't think it's too big of a jump to believe that Gideon probably had worshipped at the feet of this idol a time or two. If not, he made no efforts previously to remove it. And so we have to ask, why hasn't he, by this point, removed the idol? And I think it's obvious that because he didn't really have a lot of trust in the Lord. He had already kind of called out the Lord. The Lord has forsaken us. Let's go find another God. This, is, these, this pair of idols is what his family trusted to sustain them. They, they thought the rain for their crops and the fertility of their wombs came from these two statues in the backyard. And so God commands Gideon in a command of trust. God is basically asking these questions as he commands Gideon, will you trust me to sustain you when all your idols are gone? And will you trust me to sustain you when others oppose you for your allegiance to me? Those are the two questions at play here. God is instructing Gideon to put legs on his newfound trust, to take his next step of faith. And so breaking cycles of sin, tearing down idols in our lives, and taking next steps requires that we live out our trust in the Lord. But too often we say, I can't do it. It's too hard. It's just part of who I am. It's part of my personality. It's part of my, my makeup. It's always been in my life. What if, this, what if this costs too much to, to take a growth step in this area? Like, I've never, ever been able to do it before. To which God would answer, exactly. Exactly. You can't do it. Breaking cycles of sin, taking next steps, is too hard for you. It will cost you more than you have to give. Which is exactly why we must trust the Lord to sustain us. Trusting God means that we're in a position where we cannot rely on ourselves. We must rely on God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't feel fear. Gideon is clearly afraid of his family as he tears down the family idols and slaughters the family bull. I'd kind of be afraid of my dad in that position too. But I love what one commentator said about this part of the narrative. He said, some may blame Gideon for demolishing Baal's altar by night fearing relatives and city fathers. The commentator says, I, I doubt that it matters. Did God tell him to do it by day? No. Did, 
God tell him he couldn't be afraid? Or did God simply tell him to do it? He says, evidently, obedience was essential and heroism optional. I love that. Obedience essential, heroism optional. Don't wait until you stop being afraid to take your next steps of following Jesus. Trust God in your place of fear. Trust God even when you don't know how he's going to sustain you because he will. He will. Watch how God powerfully sustains Gideon in this story. In in the end, it is his family, the one who he was afraid of, specifically his dad who put up the idols in the first place, who defends him. Like, God sustains Gideon's life by using the very person Gideon feared in the first place. We serve an awesome God, don't we? Like, he can do what we cannot imagine. He can change hearts. He can work in such unexpected ways. And he preserves our lives in ways that we cannot imagine as we take steps of faith. He can do that because he is God. And it's kind of the whole point of this part of the story. Like, God is the powerful creator and sustainer of life. Not Baal, not the Asherah. See, God's battle isn't merely to annihilate the Midianites. It's to free the Israelites' hearts from their idolatry. And the townspeople want to kill Gideon because he just destroyed the thing in which they put their trust. They they just lost the idol that they believed was sustaining their livelihood, which is why it becomes so ironic then that they defend this so-called God. Here they are trying to save and sustain the one who they believed sustained them. Joash is so wise in this defense of his son's actions. Will you contend for Baal? Will you save him? In other words, why are you defending a God? If he's really a God, he can defend himself. He can sustain his own life. He can put himself back together and and take care of my son. Let's watch him do it. But wait, he can't. He can't. Psalm 96 captures this line of reasoning well. He says, For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And that's exactly what God said was the problem with Israel back in verse 10. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Their problem was that they feared other idols. They trusted other idols. And the Lord is to be feared above all gods because those other idols are worthless. We see here through their response to Gideon tearing down the idol that they hadn't obeyed the voice of the prophet. Israel still did not fear God above all else. The nation had regret, but they did not have repentance. Instead, they kept on worshiping their worthless idols. They they feared when they were torn down. They feared idols that could not defend themselves. They feared idols that could not sustain themselves because they were pieces of wood and stone. 
And we do the same thing sometimes. We, we put our trust in things that we must sustain. We derive our sense of value and security from the things that, we, that need us rather than the one who we were created to need. Gideon has come to understand the folly of doing that. The folly of trusting himself. And, and now his, his dad, Joash, has come to understand the folly of trusting a, a statue instead of human activity that, that must be sustained by human activity. And we're going to see that the whole Abiezrite family comes to understand the folly of doing that. The question is, do you see the folly of doing that? In your own life, do you see the folly of finding hope and happiness in material things that need you to maintain them? And then do you have the courage to let go of your hope in those things? Do you see the folly in finding significance and security from other people who are finite and weak just like yourself? And would you instead try to seek to find your identity in God and what He says about you and how He has created you and how He, the purpose He has placed on your life? Will you see the folly in, in learning to look inward for everything that you need? You, you've never found what you need inside of you before. It's always left you wanting. Would you trust Jesus to give you what you need instead? Will you see the folly of creating a God of your own imagination and then bowing down before that God and worshiping that God instead of the one true God as he has revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ? We can't make headway against the cycles of sin in our lives unless we see the folly of our idolatry. Unless we see that, that our idols can't sustain us, only Jesus can. We can't take next steps to following Jesus unless we see that Jesus doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to fight the battles of our sin. We need him. Don't trust what you must sustain. Trust the one who sustains you. So the Lord is sustaining Gideon. He turns the father's heart. We learn next that he turns the whole Abiezrite family to Gideon's side. Verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and, and he sounded the trumpets and the Abiezrites, that's his family, his family clan, were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. Those are other tribes. And they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said, if you will save Israel, said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. So Gideon, that wasn't enough for him, right? Like, it's like, well, maybe I made a mistake in, in how I set that thing up. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung out the dew and, from the fleece to fill the, a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Like, I know I'm asking a lot here, Lord. Let me just once more 
Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more this, with this fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands in their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will, get, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their, and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, man, man to every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So now you're kind of getting scared, right? You're down to 300 men. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. And you shall go down and hear what they say, and afterwards your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. What do you think? Is Gideon afraid? based on what you've you seen from him so far. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Yep, he was afraid. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along with the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, and as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned, up, turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. That is a big loaf of bread, y'all. But remember, where was Gideon when we found him, right? He was, he was threshing out the wheat. He was threshing out the grain. And so his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand the Midian and all the camp. Wow. Prophesying through a Midianite. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them in the empty jars with churches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. Then when I blow the trumpet and I, I and all who are with me, then blow trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the of the middle watch, which is the middle of the night. Then they 
had, when they had just set the watch, and they blew trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three hundred, I'm sorry. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches, and in the right hands the trumpets to blow. So now they look like a much bigger army than they are, and they cried out, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon!" Every man who stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So they start killing each other. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerara. I don't know how to pronounce that. As far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers through all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, But come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now, we're going to spend just a brief amount of time here. But as we learn to not trust ourselves and trust God, we need to learn to not trust what we can understand, but the God who understands us. The God who understands us. Even though God has has visibly shown up to Gideon. He, he's, he's shown him so many different ways that he can work. Gideon is still unsure. And so he, he goes through this little exercise with this fleece. And so often we, we think, oh, well, you know what? This is a good decision-making strategy. I need to just kind of test God and put little tests out there. And that's how we determine the will of God. But that's not what the point of the story is. Gideon is not learning the will of God. He already knows the will of God. Gideon is showing his faithlessness. Gideon is showing that he is is unsure if he can trust God. And so the point of the story is not so that you can start throwing out fleeces, so that you can start testing God, but so that you can know that even when you are unsure, even when you are doubting, the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. He, he condescends to Gideon. He says, you know what? Sure, I'll jump through your little hoops. If I was God, I'd be like, I, I'm not some magician, dude. Like, I told you what to do. You do it. That's my sinful tendency, right? But God's like, no. I'm merciful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to condescend to you. I'm going to help you along. He understands Gideon in his fear. And so Gideon is emboldened, and, and it's time to uh, get the troops ready to go, and he's got 30, 32,000 troops. And, and that seems really good. It's about three times the size of Barak's army, but when you compare it to what the Midianite army was, we learn in, chapter, in the next chapter, in chapter 8, that it was about 135,000 strong, somewhere in there. And, and so, they're outnumbered at that point four to one. Four to one. God doesn't give you more than he can handle, does he? And so Gideon's convinced 
of, of, of God's uh, power with 30,000. But then I love what the Lord says in, in, in verse 2 of chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, the, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Uh, that type of logic doesn't compete with us, right? We're outnumbered four to one. That's too many for you, Lord? But the Lord knows our sinful, deceitful hearts, right? He knows how much we love to take credit for things. And so he weakens them even more. And, and, and there was a provision in Deuteronomy, if you're afraid, you don't have to go to battle. That's a pretty nice provision, by the way. 20,000 go home. Yeah, they're, they're outnumbered four to one. Of course they're afraid. So now they're outnumbered uh, 13 to one. 13 to one. So God's like, still too many. Still too many. And so he gives this arbitrary test. Now you'll hear people say like, Oh, no, it's because, you know, they're, they're, they're more skilled soldiers and they'll kneel down and they're more ready for the battle. Like, that goes against the whole point of what he said in verse 2. He's like, I don't want skill. I just want weakness. And so, 300 soldiers, because of the way that they drink water, were selected. Again, I don't understand the way that the Lord works. The point is we don't understand. Like I love how scholars are trying to figure out how the Lord works. No, the point is we don't understand how the Lord works. So now we're down to 450 to one. God's like, I like those odds. God never gives us more than we can handle, does he? But yet he shows that he understands Gideon. He understands that the Gideon needs to be humble and vulnerable before him. And then I love what he does next. He, he understands Gideon in, in giving Gideon the, the opportunity. He's like, you could go take, the, take them now. Just take your 300 men and go and defeat them, and I'm going to give them into your hand. But if you're afraid, I'm going to give you some things to strengthen you. And of course, Gideon is afraid. And God's not like begrudging Gideon that. We don't need to begrudge Gideon that. It's a provision of God in his mercy. And so Gideon hears this vision and he is strengthened and he wins the battle through no act of his own. His men win the battle through no act of their own. They simply throw jars and blow trumpets and hold torches. Sounds like an average household, to be honest. God is patient and our faith is slow. And we must trust him. We must take steps of obedience to break cycles of sin. And it's when we think that we can stand against our enemy that we fall. It's when we trust ourselves and our own understanding in our battles against sin and temptation and trials and consequences it's when we think that we're strong enough to try harder next time. Just going to try harder next time. Just going to do better next time. It's when we think that, that we fall. And it's actually going deeper and deeper and deeper into our trust of Jesus and his salvation. 
that we can stand. It is through faith in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, who made us righteous in him, who rose again for us, and who gave us his Holy Spirit to walk by. It is through faith in him, through trust in him, not through trust in ourselves, that the enemies fall, that the battles are won. And so as you seek to break the cycles of rebellious sin in your life, God wants you to see that you aren't the hero of your story. He is. And God gives you far more than you can handle so that you would see him. Is there something that God is calling you to do or believe that you just don't understand how it's going to work? Is God leading you to something that seems impossible for you? But it's still a clear obedient, act of obedience to his word and you can trust him. Even though it seems impossible, you can trust him to take that step. What's the sin pattern in your life that you can't understand how it's going to change? Don't try to convince yourself that you can do it. You can't. And that's the point. Trust God, not yourself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Gideon's weakness. I thank you for our weakness. Because in our weakness, we see that you are strong. Lord, I pray that you would show us our need for you. I pray that you would convince us of your presence with us. Lord, if there's anybody here who is doubting, if there's anybody here who is afraid, would you comfort them? Would you give them what they need? By your mercy, Lord, give them what they need. If there is anybody here who is unsure of what it's going to look like to follow Jesus in their life, would you... Would you show them that they don't need to know what it's going to look like, but they need to know you? And would you convince them that they can trust you? They can trust you. Lord, in the end, would you prove your salvation in our lives is your doing, not our own. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.